Dear Editor, this is the murderer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman and the girl on the 4th of July. I want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper. He wants his code in the afternoon edition. Ray Smith, don't you have a cartoon to finish? The Zodiac Killer has come to San Francisco. Another letter. School children make nice targets. He gave himself a name. Greek, Morse code, astrological signs. This guy's used them all. I like killing people because man is the most dangerous animal of all. How does one do that? I like puzzles. I do them a lot. Got any hard suspects? About uh, 90 an hour. I'm up to around 500. You got four crime scenes. Not a single usable print. You can't think of this case in normal police terms. He's breaking the pattern. Lana said you were a cartoonist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what are you doing at a gun range? I just want to help. What are you, some kind of boy scout? Eagle scout, actually. First class. Well, I've been thinking. Oh, God, Sam, was there's no evidence, Robert. What do you mean there's no evidence? You have him seen with the ciphers, the military blueprints, the bloody knife. All circumstantial. Why do you need to do this? Because nobody else will. Dave, you made a mistake! Get away from the window. Paul, are you okay? No. Why'd you do it? You put your face out there for him to see. Hello? Who is this? Zodiac was my job. It's not yours. He's still out there, Dave. Killing is his compulsion. It drives him. It's in his blood. Jeez. What? Squirrels. This is the Zodiac speaking. I have a gun. I can give you a lift to the service station. Do you always go around helping people in the night? I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. Are you sure there's nobody else in the house? Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Box Office Bylines, the podcast about journalism movies. And this week we are talking about the 2007 journalism police work hybrid Zodiac, directed by David Fincher. I am Tara Thorne in Halifax, and with me as always is Jacob Boone in Yellowknife. Hey, Jacob. The hurdy gurdy man himself. Indeed, that's what that's what your friends call you. Hi, Tara. How are you? I am good, and I'm also excited that we have another guest. This is our second guest ever. Yes, very exciting. Um, we are joined today by, and she chose this movie, which is also exciting. We'll talk about that in a second. We are joined by H.G. Watson. Hi, I'm so honored to be your second guest ever. That's exciting. <laughs> and where are you? I'm in Toronto right now. Big smoke. Yeah. H.G. <laughs> <laughs> Watson, a senior editor at IndieGraph Media and instructor at Ryerson Journalism. Also former editor with TVO, JSource, uh, the Canadian Journalism Project, and a freelance journalist who's appeared in uh, just about every major magazine and newspaper, I think, in Canada. Is that all? Is that a fair summation? Yeah, that's. I, I don't think I've had a story in the Globe and Mail yet, so maybe not entirely oh. accurate. So maybe I'll get back to you at later this year and see if that <laughs> has panned out. Uh, we talked about a couple options about what movie you might want to do, and we eventually settled on Zodiac. This was your choice. Why? Why Zodiac? So, somewhat controversially, maybe um, this is probably my favorite journalism movie. 
Um, and also just one of my favorite movies, full stop. I love David Fincher. Um, he is possibly a problematic fave for reasons we can talk to about um, <laughs> during what we talk about this movie, his depiction of women. Um, but um, I just think that this, like, this particular movie really fires on all cylinders. It is... Um, you know, it's really well written. It's really well shot. You know, it has maybe one of the most horrifying scenes in film for me. Um, I actually thought about, I was going to, my plan was originally to watch this last night. And then it was around like 10 o'clock and I was thinking about that scene. I was like, I can't watch this. I will not sleep all night. So I watched it this morning in like broad daylight because it's the only way I can, even though I've seen it about 8 million times now. Um, yeah, it still like creeps me out way too much to be able to watch at, by myself in the dark. Will you tell us which scene? Yeah. Yeah, it's the scene later in the film when Robert, um, who's played by Jake Gyllenhaal, he's following up on a lead on the case and he goes to the guy's house that um, has like this film canister that could maybe be everything. And he ends up in the guy's basement, which is like, they note earlier in the film that it's very unusual in Southern California for homes to have basements. And he, he like that feeling of like, is he down there with the Zodiac killer? And the, and the way the whole scene is shot and lit is just, well, it's so tense. Like your, your whole body just seizes up until he gets out of the house. Well, and he thinks he hears someone above him. Yeah. Oh my God. Which is just like, ugh. cause I think too, in the lead up to that scene, they're, they're discussing, you know, it could be this other guy that's the Zodiac killer. I really, there's too many Zodiac suspects. I can't keep track of all their names. So it's this true. is going to be like, <laughs> it's gonna be like that one dude and that other dude. Um, uh, yeah. So the, yeah, like the fact when he, and I think when the guy too, he says, oh, that's my handwriting. Actually, I did all the posters and it's the yeah. same handwriting as the Zodiac letters. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> terrifying. We're going to get into our theories about who we think it is at the we're end. We're going to try and solve it. I mean, it's Ted Cruz. Everybody knows this. <laughs> right. So we're all good now. Yeah. Tara, what did you think? You've seen it a number of times. I have seen it time. a number of times. I find the last, so it's too long. Um, <laughs> I do not like long run times. And this is a very, I, I find once, once they get into the last like 40 minutes, which is the too long part, where it's just about Robert Graysmith's obsession and his wife leaves him and he's, you know, bugging Dave Toski at home and all that stuff. I like I maybe because we know it's never been solved. I'm sort of like, where what is the point of any of this? So I find it drags in the in the back third because that's how long it is. We have to separate it into thirds. But um, and there are no, you know, Chloe Sevigny is in it. Very bad part. Um, that only exists to give Grace Smith something to lose. Um, but David Fincher, uh, you know, is a well-respected, well-known technician. Um, it looks great. You could tell they had all the money they wanted. Um, it's very compelling for just a bunch of dudes mostly talking. Like, it's for a movie about a serial killer, um, they don't really lean into the killings that much. Some of them more than others anyway I actually I really like it I just think it's it's too long and it could have been you know not a panic room length that's too short but um you know maybe more gone girl length yeah you know what I I do have to take back what I said in the beginning I actually think gone girl slightly edges out this movie just because gone girl plot wise and I, I do agree with you I do think the back end of this is a little like of a letdown 
Um, and it's hard, right? Because he can't just be at the end, and we got the Zodiac Killer, and everybody was happy, because yeah. that has yeah. still not happened in real life. Um, yeah, so it really, it, it, it's definitely a movie that's like, white dudes and their feelings and being assholes <laughs> um which you know is a well-worn genre and mm-hmm, i get mm-hmm. why white male directors are very obsessed with it um yeah i was actually i was thinking to myself um because i too was like extremely like poor chloe sevigny who was in that oh. movie and like again she literally name a personality uh trait that she has you can't she's she's just there glasses, glasses. yeah glasses, glasses. wears glasses the <laughs> other the other person too um who is in that film uh, and anyone here who watches um oh frank grace and frankie will note that june diane Raphael. she plays mark ruffalo's wife and has like three lines and yeah basically that's it so I, every time i see her i'm like oh my god it's her because uh, i love her podcast um yeah so that is definitely an issue with this I, I i was thinking during this movie and it's a thought that i've had like i have often but with um uh robert downey jr's character in particular like you so rare get to see women in those type of roles where they get to be sort of like clear like or if they are it's usually like they're so badass like they're, they're usually playing cops that they're just that's their whole personality you don't get mm-hmm. to sort of be also funny also kind of cool like that that never really happens and i was like oh that would be just so much fun like if i was an actor i would want to play that character in this film um i think one of the main drawbacks to the film and i i, I do like it i've seen a lot i i think for a two and 40 minute two hour 40 minute film it's very watchable um maybe because it does sort of flow between like the crimes and then the investigation and then the journalism sort of graysmith hunting um i robert downey jr is a little too much robert downey jr and i don't know if paul avery was had those same quirks and mannerisms this is also we we talked about this is right before the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah. And you've got Iron Man and the Hulk and the Spider-Man villain from last year's movie all together. It's funny because Paul Avery in this is like if Tony Stark had really leaned into his alcoholism and had no money, (laughs) then you've got Paul Avery basically. Yeah. I like Avery's character a lot after he leaves the paper. Um, when he's just a scene, sad drunk? A little bit. The scene on the boat, the houseboat he lives on with Jake Gyllenhaal, um, where he sort of chastises him for still pursuing this story. And I think it's he's meant to be a roadblock or, or you know, we're going to shift. And now Graysmith is, is going to be the one who takes over the investigation. But I think he makes some solid points about continuing an obsession with the Zodiac Killer to find out who did it, which... No one ever has and still hasn't. And still there are many documentaries and books and podcasts and many things where, as he points out, there's more people dying on the freeway and maybe we could write about that. Yeah, it's actually, that's a really good point. Cause like, I, th- I think I, especially in the last little while have, have seen a lot of solid criticisms of sort of the true crime genre and having all these podcasts and having you know people that are 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 armchair sleuthing around these things like i mean there's you know 
certainly we know that certain types of crimes are get more visibility and more popularity than others. And, you know, you have to ask yourself, like during this time in San Francisco, when there was this focus on the Zodiac killer, who was, as far as I'm aware, I'm, I'm, I may be wrong here, but was predominantly killing white people. Like, I mean, how many unsolved murders were happening to black people, to indigenous people that are still maybe not even really well known to this day? Um, have it on order um, right now, but there's this book that has got an amazing review and it's called The Five. Um, and it's actually an attempt by a, a woman writer to recenter the Jack the Ripper narrative on the women who were killed. Because when you talk about those murders, it's always like, oh, Jack the Ripper, who was he? Was he secretly a prince or a doctor? Who cares? Um, without talking about the fact that, you know, he prayed and terrorized sex workers living in London and how, like, what a terrifying existence that would have been for, for, for those people. So I think that that is definitely a component that comes into any of these true crime um, series or things. Um, at the same time, though, I, I totally get the fascination. Like, it, it's, it's just like, you know, it's your worst fear. It's, you know, you want to be, I, or I want to live in the world where I'm trusting and I go out and I, I do, like, you know, in, in the film, a couple is killed in broad daylight just sitting by a lake. I've done that a hundred times. I like, you know, the fact that it happened that way is, you know, deeply horrifying and fascinating. And I, I do get that, that human nature of like, you know, who did this, who, what kind of horrible person has that in them? But the, the only reason that it became a story, and I think we, we can sort of expand on this is because he sent letters to the police and he sent letters to the press and he used them. So he sort of was like, Hey, I'm an active serial killer. Here's some clues, dickheads. Go have at it. So he sort of manipulated them, and you know, at one point they literally say out loud, "He just wants the press." Um, yeah. yeah. So you know, a good question. Um, you know, maybe no one ever asked was, should the press have played along in the first place? I thought a lot about whether the San Francisco Chronicle had a public editor, and if so, what a nightmare their job must have been during this period. Like, <laughs> oh, great, my reporters all you know, decided to publish this insane note from a, from a person claiming to be a serial killer. Yeah, I, I definitely thought a lot about this. And it, it reminded me of the conversations we have been having in recent years about whether to name mass shooters. And I think it's a very similar thing because there's definitely, and there's, a, there's studies showing, at least on the mass shooter side, I'm not as familiar with serial killers, so it, it would seem to me very similar, is that these guys like want the attention. They want to be a name. Like they seem to view it as almost martyring themselves in a way. Like they want that fame. And I, I think like for us, we have to balance that with, you know, our still our duty to do good reporting and to make sure disinformation about other people doesn't come out. Um, you know, I am sort of in the favor of like, it needs to be as minimal as possible. It needs to be, um, and, you know, it shouldn't be, like, uh, photos of whoever the killer is put out there. But, yeah, I, like, you know, if I were in that newsroom in the San Francisco Chronicle, like, um, in the 1970s, I I think I would have been one of the voices in the room being like, we are not publishing this. Like, frankly, the fact that they do decide eventually to publish it is truly bananas to me. Like, well, and don't is it the Chronicle that that publishes all three? I don't know which paper it is. I know for sure the, the first one, and they, they for some reason too they see. I, I think it was more than one, and I remember 
specifically thinking this when I was watching the scene this morning about them being like, well, we'll run it on page four. And it's like, oh, well, you know, <laughs> no one's going to see it there. Like, that's way better. <laughs> um, yeah. And then I think there was another one that they ran on the front page because I remember that scene coming up and, and like somebody flips a paper open and you can see the the things on it, the... I want to call it a cryptid. I know that is 100% wrong. That's a big animal that's fake. But <laughs> when the uh, the history teacher or whatever solves the, the like code, they're looking at a newspaper that's like, here are the letters that was sent were sent to the other papers plus ours, which I, I don't know if I would have thought to do that. They're treating it like it's the fun word jumble, like yeah. like the Globe and Mail's like full page crossword, except serial killer. Sudoku. Serial killer Sudoku. It's also such an alien environment to today's journalism where in that scene where they're deciding what to do and they're calling the other, their competitor and their competitor is going to run it on what, page two. And they have 10 minutes to decide before the thing has to get printed and sent out. Whereas I feel like it's a lot, you'd have more time to consider this nowadays. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't be tied to maybe a print distribution or, I mean, I don't know, there's there's not as many cities with multiple competing newspapers. On the other hand, like, and I'm not going to name any names, but some online publications, I could see it <laughs> being put online <laughs> with no context and maybe even in more damaging ways. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, I mean, I think that that's sort of a double-edged sword, right? Like, you could definitely have, and I think we've even seen examples of that, of like, you know, maybe podcasts that approach things the wrong way or different online outlets with different kinds of stories where, you know, there wasn't enough reporting done. So, yeah, I, I, I sort of like, it scares me to think of like certain online outlets getting a, a Zodiac-type letter and being like, check out this letter we just received or something, you know? Can like, I just say when the, they're wheeling the mail cart in and it's like this giant mail cart and the Zodiac's letters on the top and then like an older lady, the other lady with the third lady with lines in this movie um, who isn't a murder victim, um, opens it and reads it and she's the one that brings it to the attention. I got to tell you, if I got a handwritten letter now, I wouldn't look at it for maybe months. <laughs> This actually made me think, I was like, when was the last time that even happened? And I, when I was a reporter at Extra, I did once get a tip via mail, which was like, it was so cool. I remember thinking it at the time, like, oh my God, this is so like old school. I can't believe this is happening. Um, yeah, I think that was like maybe the only woman we saw in the newsroom too, though. A hundred percent. Literally, he walks in and says, good morning, gentlemen. Yeah, that was the only person in that newsroom. I mean, in a weird way, it made me like, oh, I miss old newsrooms, but it also made me like, old newsrooms were terrible because it, it, it's sort of all the issues that you see in journalism today in this movie. Mm -hmm. I, th I think about that a bit too with Paul Avery and his character and something that is maybe actually that spotlight gets a little bit better, is better at exploring, is how journalism, a lot of us, you know, we end up working crazy hours, we chase things, like there's a lot of very obsessive personalities and how that can be quite self-destructive and how the newsrooms themselves are not, you know, they encourage that behavior, but then don't necessarily do a very good job of supporting people that are having crises through those behaviors. Like, yeah. look at what happens with Paul. Like he's clearly having like a mental health breakdown. He's clearly an alcoholic and they love it when he's good at his job. But as soon as he sort of stumbles, 
they're just like, oh, well, you're out of here. You're going to go work at the Sacramento Bee. And literally yells, just get off the booze. Sure. I'll, I'll just do that today. Thanks. Thanks for the note. Yeah. So that, that to me was sort of an interesting, interesting component of it too. Like it definitely reminded me of some conversations we've had in the last little while. One thing I wanted to ask everyone's opinions on, is this a journalism movie or is it a police cop movie? Or does, is it both and does it switch in between? I would make the argument that it's a, it is more a journalism movie than it is a cop movie because Robert is the protagonist. Even though he's a cartoonist and he is in some senses an amateur, he he's almost like an example of somebody who learns journalism on the fly because towards the end of the movie, when it's just him on his own and he's working on his book, you know, he's using journalist techniques, right? Like he, he, he basically becomes Paul in a way. Like he mm-hmm. has soaked up everything he saw Paul doing and is now doing it himself. Um, and I mean, Mark Ruffalo is clearly sort of the second protagonist in this film, but this journey that the viewer has taken on is through Robert and through his, him first watching the investigation and then him trying to complete it on its own. Um, yeah, and I, I think the other thing that to me swings this slightly more on the journalism side is that we are also introduced to the cops through their relationship to the reporters. And, and so in that way, it's a very interesting movie about like how reporters end up using cops as sources. Um, I'll send you guys a link to this, but um, it's funny. This morning, I was, uh, I got it. I'm, I'm uh, in the Study Hall Network, which is a, a network I really recommend for anyone who's a freelancer. Um, but they'll put out stories um, that they put, you you pay like your, through Patreon and they give us stories uh, for being members. And one of them today is literally about the problem with using cops as sources, um, which is like for reporters, you have to cultivate um, these friendships uh, with reporters and, and you have to be on good relationships, especially if that if that's a beat that you are on all the time. But at the same time, you know, cops are going to feed you what they want for good PR and things like that. Um, and I think you kind of see that a little bit in this movie, even with Mark, with, um, with Tashi, um, because, you know, he clearly had, you know, he, at some point he needed to clear his name, um, cause he was sort of implicated for making up a Zodiac letter and there were some other issues. Um, so he starts feeding things to Robert because, you know, he has a vested interest in, in getting out of this. So I thought that is, to me, that is what brings us over to the journalism movie side i also think it's built as a journalism movie by fincher one of the things that i always uh that sort of intrigued me and interested me in it when i first saw it was hearing how much research uh fincher and james vanderbilt yeah the screenwriter uh put into conducting it where they went and interviewed they went through the case files they interviewed witnesses and family members they would do multiple interviews, separate interviews, and then compare notes later to try and figure out um, if what the truth was. Because they're sort of convicting a person who's dead. Um, they do, you know, they 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 eventually settle on who they think the Zodiac is, and I think they present that. They would argue conclusively, um, and some of that isn't true, and we can maybe talk about that. But yeah, and I, I also heard that they. Like, All the President's Men was the template, that sort of investigative approach of going through paperwork. And there's a lot of that. The 
guy who plays the handwriting expert has also been in a journalism film. And I'm going to have to look this up right now because it's going to drive me crazy if I don't. But um, when I saw him, I was like, oh, that is like a a callback to other sort of 70s, 70s journalism investigative, like paranoid thriller. Yeah. It feel, it's definitely meant as like a very, per, uh, very much Philip Baker Hall. That's who played him. So he was in The Insider, another big journalism movie. Yeah, he is one of those actors who's been in literally everything, which is probably why I remember him. Um, but yeah, he, to me, his whole vibe was very like, he reminded me of the actor who played Ben Bradley in um, All the President's Men very much. Um, and so him showing up in there, it was like, it, it reminded me of the, that, that sort of vibe. Mm-hmm. By the way, um, while you were looking for Philip Baker Hall, I was I had figured out that it was him, and I was trying to figure out what movie it was. And then I learned that in two thousand five, he starred in a TV movie called The Zodiac, about these killings. He's just got it all covered really? on every angle. Yeah, we're good. This has one of the most adapted or serial killers to appear in pop culture. I don't know. Jack I Rippers. would say, yeah, yeah. It's like Zodiac, Ted Bundy. Dahmer. But all the but like Bundy and, and Dahmer like have a face and a name. It's more interesting. Right. Yeah, good if point. If you're a screenwriter cuz anybody could be the Zodiac. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little bit I think same with Jack the Ripper, right? Like it lends itself to I mean Zodiac is the only one like I, I don't think it I don't think Jack the Ripper's gone to history, right? We're probably never going to decisively decide or find out who that is. But Zodiac, I, I know when I was reading up in preparation for this episode, I actually found out that they are like, they're hoping the same techniques that they use to find the Golden State Killer, they can find, they can right. sort of conclusively confirm or point to who the Zodiac was. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things I've read all sorts of, like, I know that some people think that it was um, the same killer as the Summer of Sam. I've read uh, like 8 million different theories about other different people it could be. It's, yeah, it's a very strange and creepy case. The movie definitely thinks it's Arthur Lee Allen. Oh, for sure. And Graysmith does, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, out of everyone, Graysmith definitely put the work in, (laughs) per this film at least. Yeah. Okay, but uh, to jump in, and there's many amateur sleuths and websites who will discredit Graysmith's book, and theories and and the movie for inventing things to make it point towards Arthur Lee Allen for sure a lot more than than other characters whether it's um you know consolidating witness statements or taking people who were unreliable and and later changed their stories and presenting them as factual and upstanding in the movie like the movie walks away with its audience wanting to believe we found the zodiac mm-hmm. but i don't like as a piece of journalism i don't know if that then there's, there's, it's, it's icky a little bit to sort of say it's, it's this guy when, when it's probably not, maybe not, but certainly they don't know. All of the evidence was circumstantial. They said he was cleared with DNA and prints and stuff. I mean, I'm no cop, but I've seen a lot of SVU and that seems to be <laughs> key information a lot of the time. I wonder if the movie would have been as well received if it truly was about a spiral of obsession into a case that doesn't have a resolution and doesn't have an answer. No. And I mean, even as it exists, it just sort of ends. It's like Jake Gyllenhaal looks him in the face, does nothing. And then up come the title cards. 
Well, they have that, and they have that one last scene, right, where um, the one of the McPoyles um, fingers uh, yeah. Alan as being mm-hmm. the the killer. Um, yeah, that's a really that's a really good point though, because I too I definitely feel like you walk away from with the impression like you know who Fincher thinks it is and who Grace mm-hmm. Smith thinks it is, um, but like this is not. This is a real story. Even though it's a film, it's based on research. Um, yeah, I, I this is a I sh- I'm teaching a class on journalism ethics and law right now, and I feel like this is almost a good ethical question. Like, where did this? Even though this is technically a work of fiction, like where does the line cross? Right? Mm. If 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 Alan was still alive today, and probably I because I don't believe he is. If no, he died. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I mean, and you can't libel the dead, which is probably why they could even make this movie in the first place. But if you weren't, you know, could you make that movie? Could you still, like, say, basically sort of imply at the end that it's probably him, if that's what you think? I also think he was a child molester, so I think they know collective- collectively it's not that hard to make a jump. Yeah. Yeah, he wasn't a good dude or anything. No. But that doesn't make him a serial killer. Exactly. Well, I mean, the Golden State Killer is interesting because I don't believe the guy that they eventually found out who it was was ever, like, a suspect or mm-hmm. someone that police investigated. So, I mean, for all we know, for all the dozens of people who have been theorized, it could be some random other person. We don't know. Well, and they say they had 2,500 suspects. <laughs> so... <laughs> you just got to start narrowing it down somehow. <laughs> Uh, there's a wonderful scene or line by Ruffalo when, when Grace Smith tells him outside the movie theater where they're watching Dirty Harry that, like, you're going to catch him. And Ruffalo is like, how? Because they're already making movies about him. Yeah. He's so pissed that at feels, that movie. Man, he's mad. <laughs> it feels a little meta about Zodiac as well. Okay. I, I'm, like, fascinated by this cop, I have to say. So Tashi was the inspiration for Dirty Harry. And I guess at this point it was so famous because of the killings that, um, you know, the most liney, the whiny Luke Skywalker line, like, I was going to go to Tashi Station to pick up some power converters. That's Tashi. Like, George oh Lucas specifically God. put the name in the film because he was like, I think that cop's getting a bad rap. He's trying his best. Um, that was my weak attempt at a George Lucas impression. <laughs> it was dead on. <laughs> um... But yeah, it's that was like how ingrained this was in the popular culture that it snuck into a Star Wars film and inspired a very famous Clint Eastwood film. Early on, um, when we first meet Graysmith, he says, when he first sees him, he says he wears his gun like bullet because he's got it up like on his yeah. ribs, essentially. And he goes, no, McQueen got that from him. Yeah. Most famous detective in America. Yeah. It would actually have been very sad for him to have written one of those letters. It's just like, dude, you're so cool. It would have been. Yeah. <laughs> and he's still alive, I believe. I think he is, yeah. Dirty Harry's very interesting, too, as as this piece of public relief, I guess, in terms of, like, that's where the Zodiac Killer got caught. And he didn't get caught. He just got shot and killed by a police officer in the public culture, in the pop culture. And that was almost enough then everybody could move on. I'm trying to think if there's a modern equivalent to that where there was a a TV show or movie 
made about the investigation of a serial killer, even if it was just like sort of very close. I guess, I guess SVU and Law and Order in those shows, they were always sort of based on crimes that were going on. Yeah, whenever you see a title card uh, in front of Law and Order that says it's not based on anything, that means it is. <laughs> I didn't know that. I have to admit, I'm like not a. I I like some true crime, but I and like there's been you know I listen to Serial and that, but I'm not like a heavy addict um, into it. Like my mom loves it. Like she pretty much only reads murder mystery novels. Um, she loves my favorite murder. It's it's you know she's she loves it, but I just like I don't know. It feels just, it. The fact that it's real to me, it, that it's not to me, but real, um, it just, it makes it so much scarier. Whereas I could listen to podcasts about like, you know, ghosts or aliens or <laughs> like all day long. It doesn't bother me because like I, in my head, I'm just like, oh, okay, it's fine. It's not real. Or, or ones that are truly historical, like stuff about Jack the Ripper is, it's so far away. Um, but yeah, I just like, it, I find it very difficult to 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 get really into things especially things that are ongoing because it's just like oh my god this is so deeply horrifying well there's that joke going around twitter it's like if we defund the police who's going to solve all the murders it's like white ladies with true crime podcasts (laughs) don't worry about it yeah uh, I don't know. I, I feel like maybe too many Karens listen to true crime podcasts. (laughs) Sorry Karens. (laughs) You remember his name? No. But it was right after the murder at the lake. And what did you tell this officer? I told him that I'd gone to Salt Point that weekend to skin dive, that I was alone, but I met a couple there. I have their names at home if you want. That would be great, Arthur. Lee. What? Lee. Nobody calls me Arthur. Also, that day when I came home, my neighbor saw me. It was around four, but I forgot to tell the other officer that. Neighbor's name? Bill White. He died a week or so afterwards. Heart attack, so I didn't think to call to follow up. The knives I had in my car with the blood on them, that blood came from a chicken that I killed for dinner. What? I had knives in my car that weekend. Maybe Bill saw them and called the other officer on me. Well, we'll be checking in on that. Uh, Let me ask you something else. Were you ever in Southern California at any time in 1966? Is this about the Riverside killing? Yes. Well, I guess I was there around that time. I used to go down there a lot. I like the auto races. Foreman says that you're ambidextrous? No, that's untrue. You can't write with both hands. My teachers tried to make me when I was a kid, but I couldn't. I'm left-handed. He also said that you made statements about killing school children. That is... That is horrible. That is... That's a horrible thing to say. So, you aren't angry about being fired from Valley Springs for touching your students? not the zodiac and we are back you're listening to box office bylines uh oh, no longer on the radio uh <laughs> with jacob boone and tara thorne and our guest this week talking about zodiac with hg watson 
and uh, you were just going to tell us your favorite line in the movie? Yeah, well, it made me laugh too, especially because I've been working on a draft all weekend for a story um, that my editor has been super gracious about me needing to push deadlines back on, and I feel so terrible. Um, but um, Paul Avery, at one point, one of his editors comes over and he go and he's like, "Where's the story? Where's the story?" And he goes, "It's done. It's written down. I just have to type it." And the editor goes, "It's not typed out. It's not done." And I was like, "Oh, this movie is speaking directly to me right now," like, because too. I actually. Actually, especially when I'm working on features, I tend to hand write out a lot of my notes when I'm in sort of the early drafting stages. So I was like, Whoa. literally, this is speaking to me in that I just need to sit at my computer and type this shit out. <laughs> so I was like, thank you, Zodiac, for making me do work today. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it's, it is funny for a journalism move. Like, I think if you compare this to Spotlight, which is very, it is so much about the journalism in that they literally have this scene where it's like, here's us using Excel to, <laughs> to sort out sources. Um, this movie isn't quite as focused on that. Like it's still a bit of that sort of like, and I think especially with Paul Avery, it, even though it does eventually just um, deconstruct it, um, you know, he, Paul Avery is clearly supposed to be in that Hunter S. Thompson role. Like, even, like, his costume choices in the film clearly are meant to call to that. Like, he wears the same aviators. Um, he's kind of got, like, a hippie style. He wears the military stuff. That's very, like, Hunter S. Thompson to me. Um, eventually, though, you sort of see what that lifestyle brings for most people. So, I, I again, I do think it's a deconstruction. But, like, it's still kind of, like sexy and cool and you know he's such a badass and it's like again it's like a guy you want to go have a scotch with and t tell him your crime stories and i can't i don't know i wasn't a reporter in the 70s obviously um but um i i feel like you know those kind of reporter like majority of reporters are you know really nerdy people who yes Schmaus. are very obsessive but are just like <laughs> you know, maybe not quite that cool. And sometimes the people that are that cool are also just kind of dicks, which to be fair, they also present Avery as. And and I say this very lovingly. I am one of those nerds. All my good friends in journalism are those nerds. But yeah, and I, 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 I keep it as a spotlight. And it, Spotlight is very much like it, it does, even though it's not my favorite journalism movie, it is a gold standard. It is the standard for sure. Everybody, all the journalists in that movie were so refreshingly normally normal and Mark Ruffalo, weirdly, of course, is in that. Um, and looks terrible. His hair is awful. It's beautiful in this. I, I like that they all look terrible. It felt, like, very relatable to me. <laughs> yeah, if you can make Rachel McAdams look like some schmo at Charlie's, you're doing, you're doing a good job with your journalism. Exactly. And I, I think, like, again, one of the things that they get to is, yes, like, they talk about, like, the fact that this story is stressful. And I think Mark Ruffalo's character in that movie he is sort of the one that seems to have the hardest time when dealing with stress. At the same time, it's not to the Paul Avery level of like drinking himself to death. It's just like, mm -hmm. I'm clearly having some issues with my home life, but I'm still mostly pretty together. So I think that's sort of the difference. Like this is still very sort of the jazzed up like movie version of journalism where we're chasing serial killers and drinking scotch well, at a cool bar near the near the the newsroom and blah 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 Morty's. yeah when he yeah. when he and um graysmith go for the drink and he actually actually that's a laugh out loud moment where he's like this can no longer be ignored what is this drink and he's like it's an aqua velva and then they cut to them with a bunch of empty aqua velva cups between them and then he just casually leans back and like does some cocaine <laughs> 
while talking. Probably for the 70s is realistic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I looked up what was in that drink because it looks horrifying. It looked like a barf to come. Yeah. It's um, uh, vodka, gin, pineapple juice, and blue curacao. Which blue curacao is something I drank as an undergraduate in university and one of those things I can never (laughs) drink again because, Um, but yeah, I did think that was a very cute scene. And I did really like that about Robert Graysmith. It's that he sort of presents through the movie as somebody being very secure with himself and of being a person in the newsroom. Like they talk about the fact he doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink. He goes into this sort of tough guy bar and orders like this big blue cocktail like I, I that part those parts I really enjoyed about his character but he's also a bad father like despite all of that <laughs> I mean it's it's fascinating that the movie has to include that in the little end write-up about what happened to all the murders that he has a good relationship with his children yeah the thing is it's weird though is because he's presented as a single father in the beginning and it seems like he is doing a pretty good job at just taking care of his kid like so again that's sort of a weird it gets back to the point i think i made earlier about you know these this being one of those movies that is very obsessed with like white dude pain where it's like you know he immediately starts dissolving his family and like that obsession and i i do you know i get it in a way and i get that the people do like that is a realistic thing people do get obsessed with things point of self-destruction i think it'd just be nice to see it a bit more well-rounded or to talk you know if you're going to talk about the impact it had on his family life give us more like let chloe Sevigny actually have a character or let his kids be more than just like you know we don't we only ever really see them as like his assistants in this thing, which yeah. is kind of ir- irresponsible. We don't really see much of them. So, And even they go, why don't you and mommy sleep in the same bed anymore? And it's like, so we haven't seen any problems. Just the children are telling us that there's an obvious problem. Yeah. I think this speaks to a larger problem with Fincher. And I, I kind of bit my tongue when you're like, I love him. I'm like, great. We're going to have lots to talk about. Which is that he is so uh, style over substance. I find... Largely, his movies are emotionless. It's no accident that his biggest hit is The Social Network about uh, whatever Mark Zuckerberg is. Um, I feel like he is not interested in relationships. He's not interested in emotions. He's just interested in being, uh, you know, he's he's interested in plot and he's interested in digital snow and making things look really cool and whatever. And it's more about how can I, you know dazzle you with my technical skills versus what does it make you feel that's my main problem with him so it's like you've got to like so yeah you make a guy a drunk you're like well I know what that means he, he threw his life away and like that's sort of my problem it's the Christopher Nolan him. problem too it-, it definitely Christopher Nolan has it tenfold like who the fuck wants to see Tenet what's that about who cares listen and again I I am a person who likes that sort of tech side and, and can deal with it, and I, I again love Christopher Nolan, but yeah, they both, I, they both have this issue, and I also think this is, it's, it's not just emotional. Like I think that they get like the friendships right. I do think this comes down to a problem with writing relationships between women, um, which is why I think when I when I sort of retracted my previous statement about Zodiac and why Gone Girl is my favorite is because Gone Girl of probably all of Fincher's films has. And a truly fully realized uh, female character, she's a villain, but she is 
you know, you can describe Amazing Amy much more fully than you could any other character in his films. Um, and and the, I think the reason for that is because that is, I th again, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's Fincher's only film that is written by a woman. It's written by the original author of Gone Girl. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't, like, I don't at all disagree. Like, I think he is like you said, much more a technician than he is somebody who gets the emotional core of stories. Like, I don't know who you would compare, who would be a, like, for some reason, Guillermo del Toro, and I don't want to say like he is not a technician because he clearly is, but he strikes me as somebody who tends to really center the emotional core in his films. Except he's doing fantastical stuff. So it's like, so that's yeah. a different thing. Whereas like Fincher is generally, Gone Girl aside, quite rooted in real life. So it's like, it shouldn't be that hard. It shouldn't be that hard, but it's it's a discussion we could have. We could have it about Christopher Nolan. We could have it about, but there are many, many directors, almost all the men that we could have this discussion about. Um, and I think that that is, you know, this is something that has been an issue across the industry. Yeah. yeah. Like, I think, that, I think that's a frustrating thing. Like, all things in moderation, I'd be perfectly happy if there's a David Fincher or Christopher Nolan. I'm less happy if there's 50 less good Christopher Nolans and David Fincher's also making movies and clogging up everything that gets put out in the box office, which is, I think, sort of where movie industry shifts to the film zodiac also tries to get across or it tries to come from like a place of this is the loss of american innocence because i think fincher and vanderbilt were kids and they remember sort of this being the first time they are i guess were aware of a serial killer and a, and grace smith a little bit too like starting on the fourth of july and centering it around this eagle scout who's never smoked as he tries to decipher evil i don't think that really works though i think that's a very shallow viewpoint especially for san francisco in the like height of the civil rights era and there's no black people yeah. in the movie there's one guy in in elevator except yeah he doesn't, oh, he get, doesn't on get on the elevator on? okay sorry yeah <laughs> jill and Oz pushes him out whoops whoops uh worth noting probably that the lake berryessa murders that happened uh, three years to the day that San Francisco police shot and killed uh, Matthew Johnson, who's a black teenager, causing like several days of civil unrest and eventually the military declaring martial law in parts of San Francisco. Holy. So lots wow. of stuff happening at the time outside of this one serial killer who probably dominated more media coverage. Yeah, and that, that goes back to when you were talking about Paul Avery bringing up all the highway accidents. Why not say that, like, if you wanted to make more of a point of, like, things have always been violent, like, I, I think it would have worked better politically from that, from what you're pointing out of, of this becoming awareness of, like, why weren't we covering those things? Um, yeah, and, and to be honest, like, I... Yeah, I, I, there's so many other things that they could have been covering. Wouldn't, correct me if I'm wrong too, but was not Harvey Milk assassinated in the same time period that this movie covers? Mm, I don't know the exact year. I feel like I'm that was early 80s. Or late 70s maybe? Hold on. 1978. Right, so I think that covers just right almost at the end of the film. 
Well, I mean, also, this movie goes to 1991, <laughs> which is sort of half its problem. I was very excited, by the way, the first time I watched it, which, what, 2007 it would have been in theaters, where uh, the epilogue sort of is is set at the airport in Ontario, California, but it just says Ontario, comma, CA. And I was like, oh, that's so cool that it comes to Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Not to say specific city, just, yeah, yeah, we only have one airport in the entire province. (laughs) So I would like to know um, who's your pick for who it was. So we're pretty sure the guy is dead. I think, again, the movie wants us to think it was Arthur Lee Allen. I, whilst Googling various suspects, I learned that there was a, a documentary series this year called The Most Dangerous Animal of All, where a guy named Gary Stewart thinks that his father was the Zodiac Jimmy. Killer. His father is dead. Um, and uh, Jacob and I were talking off air that it could have been any number of people that it, the crimes weren't connected and they just sent the letters. Because there is a se- there is a sequence in the movie where Avery's pointing out all of the details that are printed before the letters go out. Yes. So wh- who's your number one pick? Oh, um, no one. I, <laughs> I, I, I sort of think that there, there probably. I do think that there was one person who started everything possibly maybe two people involved in this um so there may, it may have been the same person committing the murders or it may have been the same person doing all the letters like and maybe those could be two different people like maybe the person who just wanted attention wasn't actually murdering anyone they were just looking for details of reported murders and sending things out however that would sort of go against the fact that there are details in the letters that make it clear that that person knew what was going on mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think the case pretty convincingly makes, or sorry, the sto- the movie makes the case pretty convincingly that it's Alan. Um, and to be frank, I don't think I know enough about the other suspects to say who else it could be, but I, I, I definitely think like, like you said, it could be, it could be anybody, right? And yeah, that's that's the really creepy part about it. I think one of one of the most horrifying details I ever heard about the Jack the Ripper killings was. There were all hundreds of letters being sent in to newspapers, and I think it was Alan Moore in one of in in From Hell who wrote that you know it's it wasn't that there was one person killing five women in East London. It's that there were hundreds of men fantasizing about it, which is maybe the thing we should be thinking and talking about. Yeah, that is that is astute. And yeah, I think that I I think that we know that that was going on with the Zodiac as well, um, and that's the scary thing, for sure. Why don't we finish up then with some trivia? There's a lot, but we'll go through things fast. Uh, did you know Tara? This is already a long movie, and a cheat. To trim the film down to two hours and forty minutes, Fincher had to cut a two-minute blackout montage of hit songs signaling the passage of time. From Joni Mitchell to Donna Summer. He did, there is a montage, though. There's a montage of the... What is that building being built? Which is good in terms of like a passage of time. That, to me, is such like a Zack Snyder, like, oh, th- people are going to know. Things are changing. Yeah. Like the, the beginning of Watchmen. Uh, the only comment Robert Graysmith said about the finished screenplay was, God, now I see why my wife divorced me. Wow. Well, men, real, men are realizing stuff. That's super nice for them. <laughs> 
would have been interesting to get a comment from his wife about the screenplay as well. Or his ex-wife. Uh, trees had to be helicoptered into the Lake Berryessa location because the area had changed substantially since 1969, and David Fincher wanted it to resemble the murder site as closely as possible. It's kind of... It sometimes helps me not to think too much about the money that film productions <laughs> spend on things. Um, you know, I, again, I appreciate Fincher as a technician. He's, he's super awesome. But uh, yeah, I don't think I would have known or cared about the tree situation. Like maybe they yeah. used it to cover up a Taco Bell that had opened there or something. I don't know. Or just go to a different lake that has trees. That's also the problem with him. It's like, but then, you know, you go to IMDb and you see like gaffes or whatever. And people are like, this airplane was flying this way. And there's no way that that city was in that direction. That was a Boeing model that was made in 1982 <laughs> and couldn't have possibly been in Zodiac at the time. Don't you love the idea that David Fincher, when he's not making movies, is just like doing IMDb trivia? Like he's just writing it, <laughs> just adding to it. He's just on the message boards. Yeah, there was, I read a story, Ben Affleck was talking about, um, about David Fincher on the set of Gone Girl, and he, to play a practical joke on him, he very minorly changed the camera settings, like, so imperceptibly that most people would not have noticed. Fincher noticed right away and had, like, a <laughs> screaming fit at Ben Affleck for doing this. We've all had screaming fits at Ben Affleck. Uh, so Fincher, notorious as, like, a not, maybe not difficult director, but like does multiple, yeah, multiple like a million takes. takes. Some scenes in this movie requiring up to 70 takes, uh, which the cast would get frustrated at, though Jake Gyllenhaal sound, had very diplomatic quotes about that. Robert Downey Jr., not so much. Uh, he was so unaccustomed to the experience and so annoyed by it that he rebelled um, and would hide mason jars full of urine, his urine around set. As a way to get back at David and bother, I guess, all the below the line people. As if he was running into the, yeah, he wasn't running into the jars of pee. It was like very underpaid. Yeah. yeah. What a unpleasant working environment for literally everyone else. That is ugh, gross. <laughs> Though, a bit of karma, that trick he does at the bar with the straws. If you remember when Paul Avery and, and Gray Smith are first hanging out and Avery's like balancing two straws or like three straws on one straw. No? Anyway. Um, Downey showed Fincher that trick and he wanted to include it in the bar scene and he had to do it 26 times. <laughs> and he was so frustrated and so fed up and he said later it was one of those little moments of actor inspiration that turned into an albatross. And then he peed in another jar. How do you, I don't know how to say their first name. Ion Sky, the actress who, yeah. So she's in the movie in an uncredited cameo. She's the uh, new Oh, mother she's the woman in the car. Up. Yeah. I, this is not a cameo. This is a role. I don't understand why it was uncredited. Like she's a yeah. sort of significant, almost victim. Um, and then like has more speaking lines than many other women in this film. Even though there are a number of murders in this movie, I um I found that scene the most unsettling when he says he's going to throw her baby baby out the window. Yes. And then we cut to her on the street and they don't know where the baby is. It's pretty horrifying. So Trivia Sky's father is actually Donovan, the singer-songwriter 
who has uh, his song on the soundtrack, Hurdy Gurdy Man. Maybe that's what, maybe she's like, I'll give you my dad's song, but I need to be in the movie. You don't need to credit me. One of the biggest anachronisms in the movie, vodka sauce, didn't exist until the 80s. That's what Chloe Savani orders at the restaurant on her date with Robert Graysmith. Jake Gyllenhaal and Mark Ruffalo were cast in part thanks to Jennifer Aniston. Uh, during pre-production, David Fincher was uh, talking to her and asked her who some of her favorite co-stars were, and she replied without hesitation, uh, Hall and Ruffalo, who she worked with in The Good Girl and Rumor Has It. Yeah, the, the Rumor Has It's bad, but The Good Girl's a good movie. Uh, Daniel Craig and Brad Pitt were the top choices for Paul Avery. Daniel Craig? Ugh. <laughs> Imagine having to look at that face. <laughs> I want I want to see... I, so I am... I'm not a huge Bond fan, but after seeing Logan Lucky, I am like, please give Daniel Craig more of those types of roles because when he gets to yeah. be like truly unhinged, he is a, a delight. I would have loved to have seen a chain a chain smoking <laughs> drunk Daniel Craig stumbling around the newsroom. That I would have enjoyed that a lot. He was also very good in Knives Out. Yes. Correct. Yeah, that's another another unhinged Daniel Craig girl. Anytime he. Anytime he gets to not be James Bond is great. Yeah, because he has the face of a character actor, yet for some reason we thought he should be James Bond. Listen, I, I find him handsome, but to each his own. I mean, she he's also married to Rachel Weisz, who's like very beautiful. Yeah, so, so she agrees with me, so I feel like vindicated. <laughs> but I also think like, I think just throw all of James Bond in the trash. Like, let's just have new spy movies. Someone said, uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge should be the new Bond. It's like, nobody should be the new Bond. Just stop it. Like, we don't want Lady Bond. I I recently watched this movie. It's called The Wedding Guest. It stars Dev Patel, who is a smoke show, um, as like a spy slash assassin slash bounty hunter. And I was like, I'd watch more of this guy just going around, being a spy, being an assassin. Um, let's please do that. Let's just have new people. Uh, in this film, when we do see the murders or anytime the Zodiac Killer is represented on screen, he's played by a different actor, three different actors. And I believe they had a fourth one to do the voice. I was just going to ask that because I, I, I definitely was thinking when the scene when the couple are killed by the lake that's the same actor playing Alan. Like, I feel like you could just tell from the way he was carrying himself, but then you can tell it's a different guy each time, which I, that is sort of the, that's the technical stuff that makes me love Fincher. Other technical stuff from Fincher, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's knuckles uh, were too hairless and pretty. So they digitally added hair to his knuckles and close-ups. This is what I'm saying. Take <laughs> the digital tools away. No one noticed or cared. Like, why do movies cost so much? I fucking wonder. <laughs> that that almost feels like <laughs> we need to fulfill the contract. We're done the movie early. If we don't work for the next two weeks, we don't get paid. What else can we do? Yeah. <laughs> Who needs hair added to them? Uh, two, one last piece just to end on because HG said it was the scariest scene for her. So that scene in the basement is actually filmed in Dermot Mulroney's basement. Why does Dermot Mulroney have such a creepy basement? This raises a lot of questions about him. I'm sure they dressed it up a little. Mm, I don't know. Oh, was he still married to Catherine Keener at the time? Dermot Mulroney was married to Catherine Keener? Yeah. Wow. For a are long they time. 
that is like a power and they got divorced that's really sad i'm so sad that does look like a divorced man's basement <laughs> just full of old film canisters <laughs> and like spider webs when the movie came out and i i sort of obsessively like researched all the obsessive research that went on into it there was somebody on and i couldn't find this again but it stuck out in my head as a memory somebody on some message board said they had moved into i think the guy's name is bob vaughn who that's the house they're in in the creepy basement and bob like got older and sick and had to move out and so uh this person moved into his house and they said that the house was like that where it would sound like someone was walking upstairs when you were in the basement i don't know it's it's you're led to believe maybe somebody is upstairs but they aren't and it's spooky that is it's okay maybe it's not another serial killer upstairs but your house is haunted it's not just oh it's the house settling if it does it every time no your house you have a ghost i'm sorry to tell you there's something supernatural is happening uh what are we at we're at two hours and 47 minutes with the montage i'm gonna go have a drink with shorty I'm going to make uh, an aqua velva and uh, make sure to bring my um, my respiratory system as we see Paul drinking in a bar on oxygen at the end. Uh, HG, is there anything you want to plug? We have you here I, to our tens of listeners. <laughs> I just recently helped launch a company called IndieGraph. It is co-founded by the fabulous um, Aaron Millar and Caitlin Havlag. Um, and I write for them a newsletter called The Indie Publisher, um, which is all about, like, if you have ever dreamed about starting your own media outlet or project, um, I'm sort of trying to help people do that by telling them great stories of other people who've done that and answering questions. Um, so you can, if you go to IndieGraph.com, you can sign up for the newsletter there. Um, yeah, and I and we've got some information sessions coming up as well, if you're, it's something you're interested in doing. Um, yeah, and that's pretty much it. You guys can find me on Twitter. It's at HG underscore Watson. It's mostly journalism, sometimes some baseball, sometimes some snark. That's pretty much it. And Tara, people can find you at ThornyHFX. Yes, you can. Never tweeting about basketball or baseball. Um, yeah, and we can find you at uh, RWJ Boone. And next week, we're going to do a movie set in Toronto about Toronto called Run This Town. It's the Rob Ford story. It does not look good. All right, HG, thanks so much for um, for coming on the old uh, box office bylines. We really appreciate uh, your insight and uh, Fincher fandom. As Jacob said last week, where are my Finch heads at? And here you, and you showed up. I heard the call and I had to come to, to defend my problematic fave. <laughs> um yeah thank you this was so much fun um i love journalism and i love film so this was just a blast and it was a great excuse to revisit one of my faves thank you so much thanks uh we'll see everyone next week